Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We're going to talk about plaster. You were missing me talk about plaster and Hebrew and not knowing different types of words for plaster and Hebrew. That's all you missed. We're picking up, I, this, is, this is a scene that has always kind of caught my eye, but I haven't looked all that much into. So we're a little ways into Kitavo, and I, on this sheet, I, I blocked off the first 10 verses of chapter 27. We're not going to get deeply into much of these verses, but I bolded in the English um, two phrases. The first is a phrase from verse two into verse three that we're told that when you're, when the people are going to be crossing over the Jordan River into the land, <clears throat> that they're supposed to set up a bunch of large stones that they then coat with plaster and then inscribe upon them the chaftavta alehen et kol divrei haTorah hazot that you should um, inscribe upon them all of the words of of this uh, of this Torah of this teaching. So you can talk about what what do you mean this Torah? Obviously, it's this Torah, which you could ask questions about, and some people do. But basically, picture for yourself: there's a bunch of big stones coated in plaster with the Torah written on it, which is a really compelling image. That's, that's an interesting thing to be thinking about. The verses go on to talk about how then when you make it into the land, yes, you will set up those stones. Again, saying that they're coated with plaster. You set up an altar to God with unhewn stones. You make an offering upon it. And then again, we're told that on these stones, and you see, I, I, bold, I bolded it again, right? So now we're in verse 8. On these stones, in the English it says, you shall inscribe every word of this teaching most distinctly. And I'll call your attention to the Hebrew there. That phrase says, be'er hetev. Be'er hetev. And we'll pick, pick up that phrase in a minute. It's always interesting to me when not just there's a, a scene that has um, sort of an unusual image, right? Most of us, when we walk into synagogues today, we don't see large stones coated with plaster with the Torah written upon it. If you have, I'd love to know what that synagogue is because that sounds very interesting to me and I'd love to check it out. But that is not what most synagogues have as a design feature. So it's just noteworthy in terms of design. And it's always particularly interesting to me as well when our commentators, when our rabbis take the same verse and understand it uh, completely differently. That, that always seems to be indicating something interesting. And this is one of those cases. And so you see here first, uh, verse two. So why, why, why the plaster? If you ask Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra says, Sheyamidu, so that it would last, right? You're not just going to write some words on a stone, right? I think about my kids. My kids, you know, doodle on all kinds of stuff. If you're just going to write with a marker on a stone, it'll wash away pretty quickly. So you put the plaster on the stone, you're going to coat it with something, and you're going to write on it so that those words last. Okay, that makes sense. But not everybody agrees with that. Shadal says exactly the opposite. He says, Lo This isn't for all generations. Ella l'sha'ah. 
just for that moment, it's only for this specific moment. Plaster is going to wash away. That plaster, that's going to go away. So here you have polar opposite opinions from two pretty smart and well-known rabbis, right? One is saying the plaster is just uh, for that specific hour. The other is saying it's so that it'll last for a very long time. I'm going to leave that there for right now. Turn the page. What I want to focus on for another minute or maybe even seven is this concept of Be'er uh, Hetev. This concept of Be'er Hetev. Um, again, that's, that's particularly in verse 8, and I'll, I'll dwell on it for just one more second, that it says, that you should, the, the JPS English has it as, on those stones you shall inscribe every word of this teaching most distinctly. So picture in your head these big stones covered in plaster, and we're being told that these words should be written on it distinctly. But, but of course, all translation is interpretation. We know this. And this Hebrew phrase of Be'er Hetev can be understood in a number of different ways. And again, this is going to be a verse that rabbis of some to great renown uh, understand wildly differently, depending on how they're picturing not just what this ritual is, but really what it's for. And that's what I want us to, to try to conceptualize in our heads, was not just what does this ritual look like visually, but if you're going to think about a group of people who are making a major transition in their lives as individuals and as a collective, right? Where we've been wandering through the desert low these many years. We are making a, a seismic shift in who we are as a people, from a wandering people to a people who are dwelling in the land, from people who have had this one charismatic leader who took us out of Egypt and now into a new era of leadership. There's, there's any number of transitions happening. So it's interesting to think about what is it that this ritual is meant to do for these people? Because rituals, it's not just about the mechanics of that ritual. It's also about what's being communicated by way of that ritual. What's that ritual for? And so when we think about, is it for that specific time? Is it for all time? And these, these pieces here as well that we're going to look at with this phrase of the Er Hetev, that's what I want you to have in, in the back of your mind. So Rashi, our commentator par excellence, which he would appreciate hearing since French, um, Rashi picks up, as he so often does, on classic rabbinic sources that inform his commentary. And Rashi picks up on, it's, it's actually little-known fact, uh, chapter 7 of Mishnah Sota, highly recommend, very interesting stuff in there. I had no idea chapter 7 of uh, Mishnah Sota was so interesting, but it's very interesting stuff. It talks about at the beginning of the chapter, incidentally, what you must say in Hebrew specifically and what you don't need to say specifically in Hebrew in terms of ritual and prayer. Very interesting stuff. That can be a class for another time. But Rashi picks specifically up um, on this phrase, Be'er Hetev, he says this is indicating that it was written in 70 different languages. When it says, Be'er Hetev, that means that the Torah wasn't just written in Hebrew, 
It was written in 70 different languages. That's what Be'er Hetev obviously means, right? Because he's picking up on this Mishnah, laying out this whole ritual. Afterwards, they brought the stones, they built the altar, they plastered it with plaster, they wrote all the words of the Torah in 70 languages. That, that what's being indicated in that phrase, being written clearly means being written in any language that anyone could possibly uh, understand. So what's clearly, it's not about the character of the letters themselves or the text itself. The clear elucidation of the words is the different types of languages in play. That if I'm going to say, I want this to be clearly understood, I want it to be possible for anyone to understand it. English, Hebrew, Aramaic, French, Spanish, Ugaritic, Chinese, Japanese, right? Any and all languages, Torah is written in all of those languages. Incidentally, Ibn Ezra disagrees completely. In a very succinct comment, he says, Haktiva, the writing. What does it mean that it says Be'er Hetev? What does it mean that it should be uh, written well or elucidated clearly? Don't have Rabbi Matt Shapiro write it. His handwriting is terrible. Get someone with good handwriting. Make sure people can read it clearly. Be'er Hetev, make sure it's legible. Yes, Alan. When I think of Be'er, I think of the Ur, the, the notion of fire. Is this another meaning, another use of the word for Be'er? Is that to like, explain or elucidate as well? If... I am remembering clearly. I think that is Be'er with an Ayn, not an Aleph. I think. We can double check, but I think it, I think Be'er, Be'er with fire is Be'er with an Ayn, not with an Aleph. Is that like an explanation? Correct. Correct. So like Be'er, like you'll see that sometimes like when the language um, in a Hebrew text that the, the com, the, like in the Kahati Mishnah, the Be'er is the commentary on the text. Right, so that so what's indicated here, right, is this idea that the the writing of the words on the plaster, be'er hetev, right, and so does that mean the type of language, the type of writing, and so on. That's what's being played with here. Um, we're we're relatively short on time, so I want to call our attention to the the Ramban here. He Ramban is more like Rashi. Interestingly, he talks about how not only. Uh, does he does he side more with with the the Rashaidic interpretation in terms of the seventy languages? But he talks about this concept that this is actually the first place that all of those little uh, crowns on the Hebrew that we see in the Torah itself. This was the first time that those uh, flourishes were ever written. He's picking up on them. Be'er hetev is like there's something particularly noteworthy and distinct about that specific writing of the Torah and that the scribes picked up on that from there, which is an interesting way of thinking about that covenantal moment and what was taken from that specific moment. I found a lot of interesting stuff on this. It was it was a fun uh, sort of rabbit hole to go down in terms of the different valences um, and, and meanings and interpretations that folks have um, on this. I have four more on the sheet. We 
don't have time to go into all four, so I'm going to pick two of those four. And if you want to read more of them as we head into the week uh, for your own uh, B-Or on what this might mean to you, by all means, enjoy. Um, what two do I want to pick? Um, I'll go with uh, the two on page three. Let's go with the two on the, on the third page um, in front of you. Um, the, the second one on there... Some folks really take this idea. There's a number of commentaries um, that talk about this in the realm of the 70 um, languages. And so that's that the different people from different nations could come and could read it for themselves, sort of a, another version of, of different people being presented with the opportunity to receive the Torah and what do different people do with that, right? Do they accept it or do they not? There's another interpretation that talks about how the plaster is actually over the letters, that it's the letters and then the plaster, and then the people had to chip it away to really learn it, which inverts this on its head again. But we're not going to talk about either of those in two interpretations. So the two interpretations that we will talk about very briefly, one is from uh, the compilation from the Sakachova Rebbe, easy for me to say, called Shemit Mishmuel. And he picks up on something really interesting. You can read it there. It's that, that first chunk, those three paragraphs at the top of the third page. And I'll summarize it by saying that he talks about how um, there are sort of inner and outer aspects of what it is to observe mitzvot and to learn Torah and to basically be, be connected with our tradition. And he talks about how there's something essential in our hearts that's, that's the, the core, the essence of that. And then there are the pieces um, around that. He says once this stage has been reached, um, in terms of getting that, that inner essence of it, even the secondary aspect of the heart will be ready to receive the Torah. So there needs to be that core essence of ourselves, our truest selves, that is really deeply connected with Torah, with mitzvot, with our tradition, with a relationship with God. And once you have that, everything else will flow from that, which is an interesting concept. And he plays with this symbolism when it comes to thinking about the Torah being written on the stones versus the way the Torah is usually written, what the Torah is usually written on. What's the Torah usually written on? Parchment. parchment right? And where, what's the parchment from? Right, right. It's actually from skin, right? It's animal skin. And he picks up on the symbolism of the stone versus the skin. And he says the stone speaks to something that is really permanent, right? Stone is about as permanent as it gets, whereas the animal skin, right, the parchment, as he says here, the animal world is subject to change, the passage of time affects the animal, the processes of nature ensure that after a certain period of time, the animal cells are replenished, right? There's something more dynamic by virtue of the fact that it's derived from what was originally a living creature, right? But there's something more dynamic there, whereas the stone symbolically and, you know, in a very concrete, as it were, way is something very different. The stone is much more permanent. And so for the people, as he says here in that third paragraph, when Klali Saral were about to enter the land, they were making a new start. They needed a tangible reminder. Thus, God required them to erect stones and write the text of the Torah upon them. 
This indicated that the first element of divine service comes from the innermost unchanging part of the personality. So according to the Sakachava Rebbe, what's this ritual about? It's to remind you of making sure that your essence, that your deepest self, that the deepest part of you is connected and aligned with learning and, and really internalizing and living Torah in the deepest possible way. And that's why it's on the stones, and that's why you need to have it written very clearly on those stones. Interpretation one, really interpretation three. We'll pretend like it's interpretation one. This next piece that I found um, talked about, he picked up on the idea that Rashi introduced from the Mishnah, this idea of the 70 languages. And so it's this essay, it's called To Each His Language, that I, that I stumbled across from a larger newsletter, but I really like what he does here. And he plays with the concept of language in a much more metaphorical way. He says it's less about, right, as he says here, French, Spanish, Swahili, Portuguese. Rather, language can refer to a cognitive modality, to a learning style. Different people speak different languages, right? Different people um, learn and understand in different ways. So he brings this into a, an educational context. And, and we, we've heard this in our tradition, that, that teachers should, should speak to students in ways that they can understand. Folks have heard that before, maybe. Every teacher worth his salt knows that he must use different languages for different students. Some students respond to clear and logical explanations. Other requires anecdotes and stories. The lesson here that every teacher learns sooner or later, no two people learn in the same way. A successful teacher discerns the learning styles of each student and develops strategies and modalities that facilitate the learning of each member of the class. Okay, how did we get there from Plaster? That seems like a bit of a jump, Shapiro. It's late on a Saturday. Help me out here. Okay. How did we get here from Plaster? We have this ritual that says, take the stones, write the Torah on the stones. Coat them with plaster, write the, sto- write the Torah on the plaster on the stones. And then it says, Be'er Hetev. Make sure it's written clearly, make sure it's legible, make sure people can understand it. Write it in lots of different languages so that anyone can Be'er Hetev, anyone can read it. And so what Rabbi Weinreb here is, is doing is he's taking this as a metaphor and he's offering it up to us for us to think about both as people who teach, because we all teach. Everybody teaches in some context, in some way. Even if you're in a relationship, if you're in a relationship with another person, you're teaching them because you're at least teaching them about who you are in the world and what you need from them. Everybody's teaching in some way or another. So what we're all doing and we're all hopefully always learning. So he takes this and he applies it into that context and he says, since this is written in 70 languages, and if we're going to play with this concept of languages in a metaphorical way, we all learn differently. We all read differently. We all need to gather information about the world in a way that's unique to us. And so because of that, what's being learned from this ritual is when you're about to make a transition, when you're moving through life, especially when you're about to undergo a major transition, you need to make sure that as a learner, you're hearing it clearly, and that for each other, we're making sure to present and share 
the information that needs to be heard in a way that's as accessible and personal and meaningful as possible. And I think that that's something that we can often forget or can we, we can lose sight of if we're in a rush, if we're thinking that it should just all be the same and everyone should be able to get it. So for me, it's a good reminder to make sure that things are being shared as clearly and individualized as possible so that we can all continue to learn and anchor our teaching and our community together. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.